Let's thank these guys for playing today again. Thank you so much. Right now we're in the middle of a series that is dealing with doubt. And the title of it is called Why We Don't Believe. And we're addressing just questions that uh, non-Christians have about the faith. But also, I think that Christians have some of the same questions, but you never really wrestle with those questions. So we're wrestling with them here while you're still in high school. And the hope for me is that this builds up your faith and uh, doesn't just give you a way to defend your faith with people that don't believe like you believe, but really gives you a love for unbelievers. Gives you love for people that don't believe like you believe. And we're hoping to um, even stir even some questions in, in your own mind so that you can have answers to those questions uh, for yourself. And so, um, so today uh, we're raising the question, is the Bible really true? Now, of course, we're in church, so we believe that it is. But we're going to uh, sort of talk about some things today that, that I think questions you guys might have about the Bible uh, that might cause some doubt in your own life. And uh, before I get into today's discussion, because if I'm not careful, today will just sound kind of academic. And so I want to frame this this morning, if I could, just for a moment with a story uh, that I want to tell you here. Because I want you to know that the words of this book, this is my... Like, really intimidating Bible. It's hardback. Uh, it doesn't flop around like most Bibles. It just, it, it's, if I threw this at you, you would die, basically. Uh, and this thing's really heavy. It's, it's a great Bible. But, um, but the words in this book are true, and the words in this book are life-changing. The words on these pages, that there's no words anywhere else in the world, in a novel, on television, on Facebook. There's no words anywhere else that are written down that are life-changing like these words. I mean, essentially, this is one big Facebook status update from God. Okay? That's really what you can call this. This is what's on God's mind. Right? And so, the words of this book are life-changing. Now, um, this past... uh, this past week, uh, several of us on staff here at TBC, we went to um, a conference uh, up in Dallas, a, a conference on Thursday and Friday. So we stayed one night uh, in a hotel up in Irving in Las Colinas. And it was this kind of, you know, nice-looking hotel and everything. It was in a nice part of town and stuff. But we, we got back from the conference that night. We're hanging out in the lobby area. We're having some conversation. Some of our guys are playing some pool. And there's also a bar area down there in the lobby and uh, there was this woman in the bar area, and after a while it became very obvious to us there were three things we learned about her within about 15 minutes. One of them was that um, she most likely had an eating disorder. Secondly, that she was a prostitute. And then thirdly, uh, that she was really, really drunk. And uh, she was running around the lobby, and she was talking about every guy in there, and, and she was just going crazy. Like, she really seemed kind of just totally off her rocker. She was saying things to guys like, hey, tell me I look pretty. Tell me I look pretty. I'm meeting a guy in like a half hour. Tell me I look pretty. And we're sitting there going, what is this lady's deal? Why is she harassing everyone? And, I mean, she, she asked 20 different guys that question. Tell me I look beautiful. I'm meeting someone. Tell me I look beautiful. And as I watch this woman just totally self-destruct in front of us, um, 
obviously I felt sadness for her, but I also couldn't help think about uh, two stories in the Bible where Jesus interacts with a woman at the well who said she had, he actually knew about her that she had five husbands previous to her current husband. She was someone who committed sexual sin. And Jesus spoke kind, compassionate words to her. Someone else uh, was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders wanted to stone her. And Jesus said, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. So you see Jesus wanting to speak into someone's life like this woman. And I couldn't help but think about those two stories that I watched this woman do what she did in the hotel lobby on Thursday night. And I couldn't help but think if, if this woman would, would just understand that the words in that Bible are true and they're for her, if she would just get that, if she would start following Jesus, then her life would change drastically. You see so many stories in this, in this book that, that talk about that. Someone who goes, like Paul, someone who goes from killing and persecuting Christians to someone who wins people to Christ. And it's because the words of Jesus, the words of God are true. And God's given us this book for that reason. The, the, the purpose of this book is not just to read words on a page so your life can change. The purpose of the book is that the words you read on the page are life-changing because they point to a God who changes lives. That's why they're life-changing. And so I want to frame our discussion this morning with that, with that in mind, that the, the book that we're talking about is one that if you really believe it, and you really follow Christ, and you really want to grow in Christ by reading that book then it will change your life. It will. And so as we talk about that this morning, think about that as we frame this discussion. Uh, Someone said this, I see much of the Bible's teaching as historically inaccurate. We can't be sure the Bible's account of events is what really happened. And and so what I want to do this morning, your first two questions at your tables, uh, you guys have your um, discussion sheets there. Go ahead and read those to your tables, and we'll discuss those first two questions. Go ahead. Okay, I want to get some feedback from you guys. Help me out here. What are some of the stories in the Bible you have difficulty believing? Just shout them out. What are some stories you have difficulty believing? David versus Goliath. Yes. Okay, Old Testament stories where, like, Elisha calls fire down the prophets of Baal. That would be, I would have loved to have seen that. But yes, that, that's one that's really hard to believe. Jonah. Jonah and the fish. I say fish because everyone's like, it was a whale. Well, the Bible didn't say it was a whale. It's a great fish. So Jonah and the great fish. That just seems totally absurd, does it not? What else? Okay, parting of the Red Sea. That's a, that's a great one. That's one of those you're just going, how in the world did, did God pull that off? What else? Yes. Noah's Ark. Um, we can just really say the entire Bible, right? Pretty much. What else? Noah's Ark, great example. What else? Genesis, the whole book of Genesis. What else? What else? 
Any ones in the New Testament that you have issue with? What's that? Okay. Even just the resurrection, right? The resurrection. Um, even Jesus raising someone like Lazarus from the dead, right? What else? There's like three hands. I'm just pointing to you guys collectively. Lot's wife. It says that she turned into salt, right? After she looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. What else? Okay. The Immaculate Conception. But you guys are like, what's that? Ask your parents. All right, what else? Was there another hand over here? Yes. Jericho. So they're marching around this, these walls of Jericho, and they're just like, what's the battle plan, Joshua? And he's like, uh, just blow this horn. Right? And they make noise, and the wall, walls come tumbling down. I sound like I was just singing a song just there. The walls come tumbling down. All right, so there's basically every story that you can think of that seems somewhat miraculous, which many of them are, it's just very difficult to believe, right? Now tell me some, what are some hard concepts in the Bible? We mentioned two at your discussion table. What are some hard concepts just hard to, for you to believe or hard for you to get in the Bible? What, what are some of those? Any feedback on those? Okay, the fact that the Bible talks about slavery and says slaves obey your masters. We're going to get into that at the end of this discussion, don't worry. What else? Okay, where Paul says things like, Women should be silent in church. He says that. It's crazy. We're going to get into that in a second as well uh, when we get to the end of this talk as well. Um, what else? Some other really hard concepts to believe. Yes. I missed the first part of what you said. I'm sorry. Okay, that's a great example. She said that God puts authority over us, and sometimes that authority can be evil, right? And uh, Lord, we're to respect the authorities regardless. That's just hard, a hard, hard concept. So as you can see, there's a lot that people disbelieve about the Bible, and I would guess that many people in this room have doubts and questions, questions that you would never raise in church because you feel like we're going to kick you out. And I promise you we will not kick you out, okay? So we can discuss those things here. Now, um, so it's true, the Bible's hard to believe, miracles, uh, things sound like a fairy tale oftentimes. Where you, if, you, if you pull back from the Bible and you're reading and you say, did, did this really happen? This sounds an awful lot like a fairy tale, right? Uh, there are tough truths in the Bible. That much is true. Uh, but here's what I want to do today. Today, we're going to focus on uh, just the Gospels. And here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to show you that here's why I think the Gospels can be proven to be true. Because if we can prove that the Gospels are true, if we can prove that, that Jesus really was who He said He was, Jesus, in the Gospels, affirms the rest of the Bible. In the Gospels, he says things like, the Scripture says, or God's Word says. He's referring back to the Old Testament. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher. And so we believe that, that he really affirmed the Old Testament. So we're not going to spend a ton of time in the Old Testament today. We're going to spend a lot of our time in the Gospels today and show you that, hopefully, that, that Jesus was who he said he was. And that by that, we can say that the rest of the Bible is, is true as well. I don't have time to get into the entire Bible today, so we'll focus on just the Gospels. Now, before I get started in this, I want to um, tell you that when you guys get to college, 
for some of you next year, for some of you in a couple years, um, this is what you're going to hear from people that aren't believers. Like you'll go to colleges all over the nation that will say things like what I'm about to say to you right now. They will say that this. They will say that the Gospels were, were passed down orally. That people just sort of pass down stories after stories after stories. That through that process, they will say the stories were changed and that legends were created. You might liken it to the uh, game telephone. Anyone play the game telephone in your life? Uh, you're sitting in a circle and someone starts a saying and it tries to get around to the end of the circle without changing. And what happens? It always does. Uh, what also happens is there are guys like me in the circle who always change it on purpose uh, to make everyone else fail at the game. So, um, but that's what happens in the game of telephone. But these, these, these professors will say things like that, um, that stories were passed down orally, stories were changed, legends were created, therefore we can't trust the Bible, we can't trust that it's true. That's what professors in universities will say. Now, they'll also say that Jesus was a good man, uh, they don't deny his existence. No one can deny that. But they'll say that um, he was a good man who was all about justice for the poor and the oppressed, kind of like a Martin Luther King in the 60s in the U.S. They will say that he just stirred up trouble against the Roman authorities, and therefore he got executed. They will say that he never claimed to be God. They will say he never did miracles. They will say he never resurrected from the grave. They will say he was a good man who cared for the oppressed and injustice, and because of that, he was executed. That's what they will say. Now, they will say also that over time, people made up this idea about Jesus being God, and that he resurrected. They will say that his followers concocted this idea that he, he was God, that he resurrected from the grave, and they'll say that his followers, listen to this, they will say that his followers did all of this so they could gain status in the Roman Empire. Now I want to point out for you two reasons why I think that is false and why that can't be true. One, identifying with Jesus often led to persecution and even death, not raised status. That much is historically true. Second reason, why would the disciples give their life for a lie? So if the whole thing is a lie, the whole thing is made up, then why would the disciples eventually give their life for that lie? I mean, can you imagine if, if you and uh, 12 of your closest friends got together and said, okay, we're going to make up this story about this guy, Jesus. Um, he wasn't really God, but let's just, we're trying to gain reputation in the Roman Empire, so let's just say he was God and tell the people that. We'll convince everyone that that is true. We'll make up stories about miracles, about the resurrection. Let's go ahead and do that. And then, um, and then all of a sudden you do that, and then the Roman authorities say, wait, you're saying that someone else is king? You're saying someone else is who you worship? You mean you don't bow down to the emperor? Well, we're going to have off with your head, right? At that point you would say, this lie wasn't a very good idea, right? You might decide, you know what, this lie is not worth my life. But here's the reality. The disciples, many of them, gave their life to what they knew to be true. Why would this many people give their life for something that they made up? Something they concocted? It doesn't make any sense. And so it's amazing that these people that spend their time in the university will um, spend so much time trying to prove something isn't true. Right? If you think of scientists in the university, they will spend time doing experiments, trying to, pro- trying to prove that certain things are true. 
But when it comes to religious philosophy in the universities, in secular universities, it seems like there are so many people trying to prove that this whole thing isn't true. When you watch specials on TV about Jesus, there's always the guy who's from Oxford or Cambridge, right? And there's that this accent there. They're like, they're like, well, you know, Jesus. I mean, he really wasn't. Uh, you know, he's just a good man, and he was just a a man that did some good things, and he got killed for it. Yeah, that that about sums it up, you know. And and they had this little very intellectual sounding argument for that for that whole argument. But here's the deal. It's amazing these guys go and study New Testament and get their doctorate, their PhD in that, to prove that it's not true. Right? I have no idea why they spend their money trying to prove that it's not true. But here's why I think they do that. Because when you bash the Bible in the secular university, you gain intellectual status. You are seen as intelligent and smart. To believe the Bible... People, people see it as, when you believe the Bible, you are sort of getting rid of any intelligence. You've got to push intelligence aside to believe the Bible. That's what they would say. And so here's what we're going to do today. I want to give you three reasons why I think the Gospels can be seen as totally reliable. And reason number one is this. The Gospels are written way too early to be made up. The Gospels are written way too early to be legends. Uh, you may not know this, but the Gospels were written about 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death, which you might think, well, that sounds like a long time. 40 to 60 years after Christ's death is when the Gospels were written? That sounds like forever. But here's the reality. The secular universities will say that they were written well beyond that, like 100 years after Christ's death. And they say that because they think there's no way... These people who were eyewitnesses wrote down these accounts. They were made up later on. And so it must have been 100, 120 years after the death of Christ. That's what the secular university will say. Whereas most scholars will say that it's 40 to 60 years after Christ's death. And here's why that's important. Because many of the original eyewitnesses were still around when these books were written. You also may not know that uh, Paul's works, Paul's books of the Bible, were written between 15 and 25 years after Christ's death. Did you guys know that? That they were written before the Gospels were written. So 15, 25 years after Christ's death, Paul's works were written. Later on, the Gospels were written. So Paul could not have taken what he wrote from the Gospels. They weren't around yet. The stories were around, but they were not written down yet. Now, here's why this, this, all this is important. Because, like I said, the Gospels were written when the eyewitnesses were still alive. Meaning that people could go and investigate the truth of these statements about Jesus. We'll look at a couple of passages today. first one is Luke chapter 1. Go ahead and turn it if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 4. And I'm reading it from the Message Bible, which is a different translation. It should be easier to understand. And here's what it says. It's the opening part of Luke. So many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us, using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, 
So you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Now, you have two questions at your tables. I want you to look at the text. And if you have study notes in your Bible, like me, if you're a nerd like me, a Bible nerd like me, you've got study notes at the bottom of your, at the bottom of your pages, read those for these next two questions, okay? Uh, so do questions three and four at your tables. Discuss. Okay, I want to give you guys a, a quick little a pop quiz. Um, I know it's Sunday, but here you go. Uh, which two of the four gospel writers were not part of the twelve disciples? This might surprise you. Did you guys even know that that two of the two of the gospel writers weren't even weren't even part of the twelve disciples? Who? Okay, Mark and Luke, exactly. Uh, Mark and Luke, you may not know this, Mark and Luke were not actually part of the 12 disciples. Now, some might say, well, that proves that we can doubt the Bible because they weren't even there for some of this stuff, right? Well, I want to argue the exact opposite, and I'll tell you why. Some will say that because these two guys weren't there, that it takes away credibility from the Bible, from the Gospels. I want to argue that the opposite is true, that because they weren't there, there's actually more credibility. I'll tell you why. Think about a newspaper reporter. Uh, I'm looking at Emily right now. Your parents actually work for, or have worked for newspapers, right? And done interviews. Now, um, at, when someone is a newspaper reporter, uh, they don't, they're not always at the event they're writing about, correct? So what they do is, uh, an event happens, let's say um, 9-11 happens, something really big. Lots of eyewitnesses. Now, Let's pretend like there was no television cameras, there was no um, media, electronic media like that. And uh, let's just pretend like all we had was eyewitness accounts and that was it. So the newspaper people show up after the events already happened and they're able to um, interview people and say things like, what did you see? And they write it down. Now, what did you see? And they write it down. Now, what did you see? And they write it down. So they have all these eyewitness accounts they've interviewed, and they put all that stuff into a story. They cross-check facts. They check. They investigate. That's the work of a reporter. That's the work that Mark and Luke were doing when they wrote the Gospels that they wrote. They're, interview- they're investigating, asking people questions. Tell me what happened here. Making sure that that story is, uh, that drives to someone else's story. That's why I think these two books even have more credibility, so to speak, because they, they weren't there. These are the accounts of eyewitnesses being interviewed throughout time. That's the book of Luke. Now, Luke is a skeptic. Luke is someone who is asking the question, did all this really happen? Is this really true? He's going to, inv- going to investigate these truths. Luke is a skeptic, and he's writing to skeptics. You may not realize this, but the book of Luke and really all the Gospels were written to people who didn't yet believe. They weren't just written for Christians to say, yeah, yeah, see, this is true. What we believe is true. This is written for people who didn't quite believe yet. People who doubt. Secondly, Luke is a doctor. Luke is not dumb. There's this idea among some people that the Gospel writers were like really, um, you know, simple-minded people. Uh, they would, they might even say, you know, um, that maybe Luke's name was Bubba or something like that, and you know, maybe he just changed his name to sound smarter. I don't know. You know, just they might throw out different ideas as to, to why they think the gospel writers weren't as smart as they really were. And Luke here is a physician; he's a doctor. 
He's someone who would probably demand proof in the investigation. Now, um, throughout the entire New Testament, there are eyewitnesses named so people can investigate. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says this. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, I love that name, was passing by was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now this verse is about the situation where when Jesus is walking up Calvary, he uh, can no longer carry his cross. He's been beaten and whipped so much he can't carry his cross any longer. And so they find a man in the crowd named Simon, and they make him carry the cross of Christ. Now when Mark is writing down this information, he's being very detailed and specific for one reason. Because he wants the reader to be able to investigate on their own. So that's why he lists names like, this guy Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So that if you know Rufus, you can go ask him, hey Rufus, did this really happen? Did, did your dad really carry the cross of Christ? That's why names are being mentioned in these books. Because the people who are reading it could then say, you know what, let's go check that. Let's go find out that's really true. He could have easily just said something like, okay, there was some guy, I don't know his name, we'll call him Billy. Uh, he took the cross of Christ and walked up Calvary for, for Jesus. He could have said that, but he checked things out. He checked the facts so that people who are reading it can investigate. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-6. to Here's what Paul writes. Paul says, Now, brothers... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning some have died. So why does Paul say that at the very end? He says this, there are over 500 people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. He says, some of whom are still living. Why does he say that? He says it because the readers can go investigate. He says it because they can now take that knowledge and go and check things out, fact check for themselves. So Paul is saying, don't take my word for it. Investigate on your own. So that's the first reason. The Gospels are written too early to be considered to be legends. So the second reason. The Gospels show the flaws of the disciples. Now, as you think about the Gospels, think of all the times where the, God, where the disciples look really dumb. Right? There are tons of situations where, where Peter, he denies Christ. Or um, they're fighting over who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? There are tons of stories where, where, the, where the, uh, the disciples look totally stupid. Now, if they're the ones that are writing the book, let, let me just say it this way. If you're writing a book about yourself, or if you know someone writing a book about you, uh, and, you're the, and they're your friend, you're going to say, Hey man, can you leave that part out about me denying Christ? Can you leave that part out? Because that just doesn't make me look very good. I mean, come on. Seriously? The part about where, um, you know, we didn't get the parable Jesus was saying. The part where we were like, Jesus, what are you talking about? That part? Can, can you leave that part out too? 
And, and so if, you're, if this isn't true, if it didn't really happen, then you can think that the stories they'd make about themselves would be much more flattering for themselves, right? So the Gospels show the flaws of the disciples. Also, if the crucifixion did not happen, why would they make it up? Why would they portray Jesus as a criminal if he really wasn't crucified in the way that he was? Also, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were who? Who were they? They were women. Now, if you know that culture at all, it was a day and age where women were oppressed. They were not seen as legitimate. Sorry, ladies, that's just the way it was back then. And here's the reality. A female witness of a crime was not considered a credible witness in court. So if they're making up the story about the resurrection, about who saw him first, they wouldn't have chosen women to be the first ones to see him. It just doesn't hold, hold water. Here's the third reason. The Gospels are too detailed to be legends. I'll be quick about this one. Uh, if you read the stories of the Gospels, they basically tell a lot of detail. There's a ton of detail in there. Now, that kind of writing had not been invented yet, okay, unless it was true writing. In other words, what I'm saying is, if it was like a big myth or a big legend, um, that's not how ancient myths were written. They were written with, like, grand language and no details really at all. And so for it to be, if it was false information, if it was really a myth and a legend, um, then basically they, they invented that kind of writing about 1,500 years before it was actually invented in modern history, okay? So the only explanation for it to be true is that it actually happened, right? It actually happened. It's too detailed to be legends. Now, um, I'll touch on this briefly. We mentioned the whole slavery issue. We've also mentioned the whole submission uh, in a marriage situation. I'll describe this briefly. We'll move on to the next point. Um, uh, The Bible does say, slaves obey your masters. Now, here's what that means. When you're reading the Bible, you can't, You can't sit there and think that the Bible is saying what you think it's saying in that situation. I'll describe what I mean by that. When it says, slaves obey your masters, the culture back then was not like America was in the 1800s with slavery. It was totally different. Slaves were more like servants that got paid to to serve at the family. It was not the same kind of slavery that you see uh, in early America. Totally different situation. So when Paul is saying, slaves obey your masters, he's really saying something like, hey, obey your employers, which is a good command. Okay? He's not suggesting that they take a beating and that they get branded and all that kind of stuff. That's not what he's saying when he said that. Alright? That's the first one. Second one. When when Paul says, uh, for women to submit to their husbands, that word submit has been so blown out of proportion, it's just not even funny. Here's what, here's what really evil men say that word means. They say it means that you, you cook dinner, you get the remote when I ask for it, you, um, you clean the house, and all the things that you would say, that's what evil men would say that word means. So these verses have been abused, there's no question. But when you think of the word submit, because here's what it says. Paul does say, wives, submit to your husbands. But he also says this. He says, husbands... Love your wives in the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, men, that means you get to die. Right? That means that you get to love your wife in such a way, in the same way that Christ loved the church. That's what that means. So, when it says submit, what are you submitting to? 
You're submitting to that kind of love, right? You're submitting to that kind of sacrifice that the man's willing to make for the wife. To submit does not mean what you think it means. Now, um, two closing points, and uh, we'll get out of here. The first point is this. The Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. The Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. Here's the deal. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not believe the Bible. You just can't do it. You can't do it. The Bible is full of absolute truth claims that apply to everyone across the board. But here's the problem. Where you and I live in the Bible Belt, uh, there are probably more people who call themselves Christians but don't believe the Bible than any other place in the world. There are probably more people in this area of the country that would call themselves Christians but don't believe the Bible at all. And my point is that you cannot call yourself a Christian and not believe the Bible. You can't do that. I talked to a guy at the gym like two weeks ago, and we had this conversation where he said, at first he said, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I believe those things. And as we started to talk more, he said, well, I don't really believe the Bible is really true. I just kind of have this faith for myself, and I don't really go to church. I don't really do all that. I'm, just, I'm kind of just a personal, I have sort of a personalized faith. And I think you see that a lot around here. There's these people that walk around and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe all that. Or I believe it, but I don't believe it, believe it. It's just a weird place to be. The the Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. Second point. If the Bible is true, then at some point it's going to offend you. You can't be someone that comes to the Bible and says, well, I don't like that statement. Therefore, I can't believe the Bible's true. At some point, the Bible's going to offend you. And here's why. Because we worship a perfect God, and you and I are imperfect. And so at some point, you're going to cross like this. And it's not going to make sense to you. At some point, you're going to go, I don't like that. Because you're imperfect, and God is perfect. This is Him shaving off the rough edges of you when you feel that tension. I'm totally out of time, and so I'm going to go and pray for us. God, I pray that you would just help us to see this book as words that lead to life change, not because of the words themselves, but because they lead to you. God, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to wrestle with that, help us to grab a hold of that truth. And I pray that you would just do a work in our lives. I pray that you would also um, just help convince anybody here that, that is still doubting, that still is not convinced uh, that you are who you say you are. God, I pray that you would just help it also to increase the faith of believers, people that already believe in this room. God, I pray also as we go and serve uh, these families that you would just give us uh, just words uh, to say to them and discerning words as we uh, talk with them, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. If you're staying to help out with the service deal, then please uh, stick around. We'll have pizza in a little bit. And if you're not sticking around, then we'll see you on Wednesday.